On July the 31st, the Alberta court ruled that the pandemic orders and tickets made over the pandemic crisis were ultra viris, or in other words, beyond the power of the government to make those decisions, and they were ruled invalid. It's quite a victory for these, this decision in terms of those persons fighting for freedom of individuals during this pandemic. And with me here today to discuss that is Leighton Gray, one of the council members who was in the court, as well as a senior fellow at Frontier and also the host of Gray Matter. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Welcome, Leighton Gray. Thanks, David. It's great to be with you back on your show. Well, Leighton, uh, we're uh, delighted to have you, and congratulations to you and uh, your fellow counsel, uh, Jeff, Jeff McGrath, as well as the Justice Centre that undertook this action, and of course to the Platons. So how did this court case really come about? Well, uh, if you cast your mind back to 2020, the fall of 2020, after we'd gone through the initial phase of lockdowns throughout the country and in most places like Alberta, there was a reprieve during the summer. And then in the fall, there was uh, an uptick in cases. And that's when the lockdowns got, uh, got really severe. And the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms uh, became very active. And they brought an application for something called an injunction. An injunction is a, is a very severe form of order uh, whereby the court says to a party, look, you've got to stop doing something because... If you don't stop, it's going to cause irreparable harm. So the Justice Center brought an application to have the, the government of Alberta uh, injuncted or prevented from enforcing these lockdowns. That was way back in December of 2020. And uh, at that time, the case was brought on behalf of uh, uh, some churches. That's who I was representing, and a lady named Tori Tanner. And another woman who became the namesake of the case, Rebecca Ingram. She's a gym owner who was represented by... Uh, Jeff Rath, and really broadly represented all Albertans who operated businesses, some of whom com lost their businesses completely. So that was the that was the beginning of the case. We, you know, incredibly, we lost that application, even though the governor of Alberta produced no evidence whatsoever. And it's interesting to note that, in fact, um, we produced the same case in that injunction application in terms of our export evidence uh, that we presented at trial. But the court did something very interesting that it's done in really all of these cases. It took judicial notice of something called a pandemic and that it essentially uh, presented an existential crisis, uh, which trumped um, you know, charter rights. Mm. And uh, in the view of the courts, justified the, the suspension of our civil liberties. So that was the that was the beginning of the case. And then um, it became very protracted. And we actually didn't get to have a trial until February of 2022. And we didn't close evidence until um, about a year ago in July of 2022. And then we had to wait an entire year for a decision. So um, it's truly a case of uh, justice delayed is justice, you know, justice denied. Because um, the protraction of the case, the prolonging of it, which was almost due entirely to the government of Alberta, 
uh, gave them a window during which they were able to to keep the province locked down for the better part of uh, two years. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's hard to believe and uh, remember uh, this long history as you've outlined it, Leighton. But the bottom line is that this decision, you finally did make it to court on this one. Was it a win? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, sadly, when one reads the decision, um, it's hard to tell. And that's because the, the, the decision opens with the essential part, and that is that the court ruled, because it had to rule, that essentially the government of Alberta broke its own laws. Um, they made changes to the Public Health Act of Alberta that essentially uh, granted unprecedented power to the chief medical officer of health and the wording of that was that uh, they could use any means necessary uh, to fight the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, the, it was a democratically passed statute in the legislature that was used to create a, a medical um, dictator. So the essential part is, and this is a crucial part for people to remember, is that um, all of the lockdown orders that were made by the chief medical officer of health, and indeed every single one of her health orders, uh, was deemed illegal. That is, uh, they that they even though they had these broad powers, they even exceeded those. The sad part about the decision for me is that um, the the court went on for eighty pages talking about um, you know the, the the charter issue, which really doesn't form a crucial part of the decision. Other than that, uh, the court did two things. Number one. Uh, it found that charter rights were violated, as has been the case in every one of these cases that have been brought before the courts in BC and Manitoba and Ontario, uh, but also found that under Section 1, which is a saving provision, a public policy provision, that all of these, uh, all of these violations, these severe violations of, of our charter-protected uh, liberties were, were justified in the name of public policy, you know, protection of the public or protection of the healthcare system, which is the way that our chief medical officer of health, Dina Hincha, put it that she was protecting uh, actually the institution of the of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, unfortunately, the decision is convoluted and it's been quite misrepresented in the mass media uh, for reasons I think. And I wrote about this actually in a piece that was published in the Frontier uh, for reasons of really providing cover for government, cover for Dr. Hinshaw, and to some degree providing cover for the judiciary. Mm-hmm. So, but the bottom line is that in some measure you won, um, these are my words, not yours, obviously, is that the orders, uh, the myriad of tickets that were given were clearly not, um, seen, they weren't upheld. They were ultra viris. So what does ultra viris mean? Ultra viris is a Latin phrase, which means uh, exceeding the authority. And uh, this, the reason why this is a win and why it's very important is because it's the first case of its kind in Canada where a court has actually said to uh, a government in the, in the COVID pandemic era, look, if you're going to pass laws that give you an uh, incredible authority uh, and then you exceed those powers, we're going to tell you that. We're going to hold you to, to that account. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's an important reaffirmation of the rule of law, which, you know, and that's a question, as you know, David, has been very much in doubt in our country mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere. You know, what is the rule of law being upheld? Does it mean anything anymore? And so this case is important in that sense. It's also important in another sense. And that is, as you put it, I mean, uh, these health orders um, permitted the 
the restriction of liberties, severe restriction of liberties uh, for over four and a half million Albertans. Every man, woman and child was locked down for, during during that period. And uh, this case, uh, the people say, well, this isn't a win. You know, I don't know how it couldn't be when it says that every single one of those lockdown orders uh, is illegal. And uh, I can tell you for the people like Pastor James Coates and uh, Fairview Baptist Church, where Timothy Stevens is the pastor, uh, for people like Ty Northcott, who who uh, put on the famous uh, Bowdoin Rodeo, mm-hmm. this is a huge victory, indeed, because it means that they are no longer sub, you know subjected to the threat of fines and even and even jail. It's important mm-hmm. to remember that Alberta pastors have spent time in jail because of COVID tickets, yeah. And so it is hugely important in that sense. I would say the significance of the decision downstream, though, David, is going to depend upon how the Alberta government, the Danielle Smith government, reacts to this. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So when we look at the case, why do you think you, you won? In the sense that what did um, you, you brought forward a myriad of experts, in, including mm-hmm. Dr. Jay Bettacharya, one of the authors of the, um, of, the, of the Barrington Declaration, advocating for health best practices away from lockdowns, using, say, more of a, an approach that was taken by Sweden. What did what did your case? Why was it effective, and why did you win? Well, I think the the important part of, of the case for us is that uh, we recognized early on that Alberta had done something slightly different than what had been done in other provinces, hmm. and that is that they chose to use Section Twenty Nine of the Public Health Act to declare a province wide health emergency. And uh, this gets a little bit technical here, but but I'm uh, in in simplest terms, uh, what that meant is that the governor of Alberta handed over the 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 maintenance of the pandemic to a medical expert. That's the chief medical officer of health. They could have done something different, which is what one of our experts, uh, Colonel Dave Redmond, recommended, and that is to declare a public emergency. For example, like the one that is going on in British Columbia right now because mm-hmm. of the wildfires. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that, I think, mainly because declaration of a public emergency would have meant different sort of reporting requirements and disclosure requirements to the public. And I think that in, in the end, what the, the Kenny government, Jason Kenny government wanted to do was to set up the chief medical officer of health as sort of a straw person uh, through which they could essentially uh, feed her information about what they wanted in these health orders, but to sort of disabuse responsibility themselves of responsibility Hmm. for what was in the orders. But essentially, the reason why we won is that under the Public Health Act, it requires that those decisions be made by an expert. And because Dina Hinshaw admitted under cross-examination that she was actually going to uh, Premier Kenny and his cabinet to get the content of these orders, even though her name was on them, uh, that exceeded her authority under the Public Health Act because that defeated the whole purpose of appointing her as a uh, uh, as a health expert. Mm-hmm. I mean, going to lay people to produce these orders uh, really just made no sense at all, and frankly was was illegal. And it also very much misled uh, the the you know the public of Alberta because they thought that they were following the expert mm-hmm. advice of medical health experts, but actually what they were receiving were the were the political diktats of, of the Kenny government, which we now know were based primarily upon a constant polling. Mm-hmm. But but that that's really not an unusual thing. I mean, I think for a lot of the public, they'd be surprised 
that the medical officers of health really were not making a lot of the decisions, but really they were appearing to make them where the real decision makers were the cabinets right across the country. Is that a fair comment? I think that is fair. But then again, um, that gets back to the issue of why would you appoint uh, a a chief medical officer of health, give her all the power to make Mm -hmm. those decisions, he or she to make all those decisions if they were effectively going to be political decisions. Right. And uh, yeah, so I think that is the essential part. The scary thing for Albertans, this is why I made my comment earlier about earlier about what this is going to mean going forward, is that all those laws are still on the books. So if we have another pandemic because of the, the new Eris <laughs> variant, um, you know, this could happen again. I don't think that the present Alberta government would do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say they've given no indication that they are. But the fact is, these laws are still on the books. And, uh, and, and so it could happen again. So that's why it's so key, in my opinion, that the legislature react appropriately to this direction that's come from the judiciary, that really this, the, the, the ultra-virus decision really recognizes a severe flaw in the way that this law was designed, mm-hmm. and that uh, it, it must be done in a much more uh, effective way and in a much more democratic way that reflects the will of the people. So if we look at the bigger picture, though, when everything is said and done, we've learned a lot about the pandemic and how it was managed. Um, and to be very blunt, uh, almost every key policy assertion that they made during the pandemic has shown to be not true, uh, whether it relates to masks or the efficacy of lockdowns, even the efficacy of vaccines is in doubt. They have not stopped the transmission of the virus. I mean, I could go on and on in terms of the incredible damage um, that the approach that our political class undertook in managing the pandemic. It's it's really quite disturbing. So were you arguing that in the case that we didn't really follow the science when it came to the pandemic? Yes, we did. And and this is one of the very uh, disappointing things about, and, and frankly, concerning things about the way that evidence was treated. Uh, we had one of the world's top epidemiologists, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, as our expert witness in the case. And it's important to note, he's not just an epidemiologist. He actually also has a PhD in economics and he's a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. So if you're designing an AI program of someone who would be the ideal person mm-hmm. to, to determine the impact of lockdowns, this would be the person. And of course, uh, as you know, David, he's one of the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, along with doctors Kuldorf uh, and Gupta, I understand, who have been on your show before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet here, here Dr. Bhattacharya uh, appears at, uh, you know, at, at no charge, uh, volunteers his time mm-hmm. uh, to participate in this trial. And uh, essentially what happens in the course of the trial is a character assassination. Um, the, the, the Alberta government lawyers, both in relation to, doc, to Colonel Redmond and Dr. Bhattacharya, essentially tried to portray them as, uh, as political ideologues. Who were, you know, and in particular in Dr. Bhattacharya's case, as someone who had a, a political agenda, was trying to advance, you know, their own career and their own social media profile, uh, which is which I found really quite disgusting. And uh, what's worse is that even in, in the decision, uh, you know, the the court said some, uh, you know, disparaging things about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the reliability of Dr. Bhattacharya's uh, 
uh, evidence, which you know is is frankly the same type of abuse to which he was subjected by Dr. Fauci uh, when you know when his uh, his reputation was attacked over over Twitter. He was called a a fringe epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. But you're quite right. Everything, if one goes and looks at the Great Barrington Declaration, really every single prediction that they made at that time has come to pass, hasn't it? Indeed. And and this is what I find so disturbing is that instead of having a healthy discussion about the science and the facts and looking at the the significant choices about how this pandemic would be would be managed, like do we follow a lockdown approach or do we take um, an approach that Sweden took, which in retrospect is is just performed so much better on every measure than certainly Canada did instead Mm -hmm. of having that kind of healthy discussion, those Alberta lawyers continue to just smear people in terms of ad hominem attacks, I would argue, um, right. instead of dealing with the facts and information. And I think that doesn't that signal that we need a, a much larger public discussion about what really happened? Well, I think absolutely. I think what we need to happen is is what's going on right now in the United Kingdom. And that is we need to have a, a, a public inquiry into the impacts of and, and really how especially our federal and provincial governments handled the pandemic or mishandled it. And we need to get to the bottom of that for a number of reasons. I think the nation needs it uh, as a sort of as a cathartic process for, for one thing. Uh, the National Citizens Inquiry, I think, is is clear evidence of that. But one of the things speaking about what's happened in court that is very troubling to me as a lawyer who spent a lifetime in the courts, is I cannot think of another situation in which the courts were so ready to take judicial notice of something, mm-hmm. of a fact, uh, or, or a series of facts, which were so much in dispute. Um, the science of COVID-19 uh, is far from settled. It never was. And yet the courts in, in British Columbia, Manitoba, and Alberta, and, and uh, Ontario we're so ready to take what's called judicial notice mm-hmm. of the existence of something called the pandemic and indeed the necessity to the, of the public policy uh, measure to essentially lock down Canadians and deny them mm-hmm. of their civil liberties. Yeah. I can't recall another situation in which a court was so ready to do that and in which courts were so reluctant, in fact, more than reluctant, where they simply refused to, to weigh the evidence, to weigh the science, weigh the science, weigh the evidence, the, the evidence that was brought before them, which is extensive, uh, and, and essentially refuse to make a decision about that. Uh, it was, I think it's, it's, it amounts to an abdication of their, of their duties as triers of fact. And uh, what makes it worse is when we see the way our Supreme Court of Canada is behaving, where they've simply refused to hear any case involving COVID. In fact, the BC case, Baudouin, the Gateway case, another case out of Ontario, it was no surprise to me to see recently that the Supreme Court of Canada simply refused to hear these cases, mm-hmm. even though uh, they meet every criteria that I understand about a suitable case to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada. They mm-hmm. clearly are, are of national importance. They, they clearly impact many millions of Canadians and they present novel legal issues. Mm-hmm. And so for the court to simply refuse to hear them, I think uh, is, a, is, is really just a signal uh, or it's a consistent signal to, to, the, to, to the Canadian public and indeed to the legal profession 
that the courts want no part of this. They don't. They don't want to hear any of these cases, mm-hmm. uh, which is concerning. But I mean, to those of us who are involved in pressing these cases, I don't think it's going to prevent the flood of litigation that's to come. In fact, it's probably going to result in the opposite effect. Okay. So the bottom line is that this sends a green light then for different cases uh, to go forward in terms of class actions for damages. And it, it dismisses as illegal uh, different uh, outstanding tickets or orders from pandemic orders or tickets. Is that right? They're illegal. That is true. That is, that is true. Um, and, and I think we are, we are going to see, and this is part of the reason why I was disappointed by the, by the, by the approach taken by the Supreme Court of Canada, because um, I think that as Canadians, we have an interest in having uh, this area of the law settled. But, you know, it's a bit of a hot political hot potato that the, that the judiciary and the legislature seem to be passing back and forth to each mm-hmm. other. Neither, neither one of them seems to be prepared to take the initiative in our country. Um, and it, it is something that is very, very necessary. We're going to have to get to the bottom of what happened and look at what went wrong, why it went wrong and how we can do better uh, the next time something like this happens, whether it's, yeah. you know, wildfires or, you know, environmental catastrophe mm-hmm. or some new subvariant of COVID-19 or, or anything else. Exactly. Uh, because uh, I think we can all agree that uh, everyone could have done a much better job uh, than, than what occurred. We're, yeah. we're living through really the after effects, the aftershocks, mm-hmm. Of uh, well, I, I don't. I mean, the, I'm not using using my words. I mean, the Douglas Allen study from the Fraser Institute said that this was the essentially the worst. The lockdowns were the worst public policy uh, ever inflicted upon the Canadian public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 stunning the impacts that the pandemic uh, had on Canadian society. The way because the way it was managed by our political class, like when you summarize the impacts on our rights and freedoms relative to freedom of conscience, um, the ability to travel, uh, the economic impacts, the loss of income, the impacts on our mental and physical health because of lockdowns, particularly on children. The impacts are stunning. And yet the judges have taken a kind of a stand back approach and not really rolled up your sleeves and looked into these facts and information now, which we know Mm -hmm. the impacts were stunning. And it's like they're not Mm -hmm. doing their job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is really important, uh, David, because um, you're turning back to Dr. Bhattacharya, who authored a recent piece in the National Post. He testified during the case and has said repeatedly that these lockdowns produce what he calls trickle-down epidemiology. And what he means by that is that these lockdowns, rather than protecting people, actually expose the, you know, the people who are the most vulnerable in our exactly. society, both, both physically in terms of their health, but also economically, financially. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a double whammy for them because the lockdowns will affect people uh, in lower income categories mm-hmm. who tend to have the worst health outcomes, the very worst. And we're seeing that now in Canada, you know, with rising interest rates, uh, mm-hmm. you know, skyrocketing household debt, debt uh, car, you know, multiple carbon taxes. People simply cannot afford, uh, you know, to to live in the way that they did pre-COVID. And of course, there's a there's a direct connection between that those after effects 
and the impacts of lockdowns, which really cannot be really cannot be denied. That our our federal government is trying very hard mm-hmm. uh, to paint a different picture for people. But it's true when you look at uh, you know at societies like uh, like Sweden and, for example, Florida, where they don't have these severe aftershocks from mm-hmm. lockdowns. I mean, it's pretty easy to see. It's transparently obvious what the difference is between what's happening there and what's happening here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they shredded the constitution, our rights and freedoms, and they made poor decisions in terms of the economy on almost every front, um, I would argue. And uh, the facts show that. And so what we have now is we've got to pick up the pieces and move our country forward. So these kinds of decisions are important. So it's vital that we have a judiciary that does its job. It doesn't just turn a blind eye to what's going on. So what I find fascinating then is what is going on here in terms of um, justices here. I know that they're human beings. Uh, Like all of us, they take in information. Is it because people are just simply not aware of these facts? Uh, what's come forward, like the whole case study of Sweden, for example, in terms of how well mm. they've done compared to Canada. Canada has done is, is one of the poorly is 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 its outcomes are, are some of the most poor in terms of the OECD countries in terms of per capita uh, money that was spent in terms of healthy outcomes in terms of death. It's really quite stunning. So why mm-hmm. is it? that judges are leaning in this direction to kind of keep off from making these kinds of decisions? Well, it's a, it's a great question. You know, <laughs> Dr. Bhattacharya uh, sort of creates the metaphor of them sort of having their, their hands over their ears mm-hmm. uh, rather than listening to the data and the facts. Um, what's, what's concerning to me about this is not only uh, sort of the, the refusal to uh, seize jurisdiction and, and as you say, do their job. But but uh, let's ask the question: What is the ju- what is the role of the courts? Traditionally, uh, the constitutional role of of our courts is to interpret law and to apply it, um, not to create it. And what we're ha- what we're experiencing now in Canada, and what seems to be the emerging legacy of the Charter is a sort of silent transmission of lawmaking power from our elected legislatures, uh, which are to express the will of the people, the will of the electorate, democracy, to unelected judges. Mm-hmm. And then when you look a little bit deeper, and actually there was a, a, some recent articles that were, that were published, I believe, in the, again, in the National Post, about who is being selected for judicial appointments. And right now, about nearly 80% of those being selected by the prime minister's office uh, or recommended for uh, superior court justice positions in Canada are people who have donated to the Liberal Party of mm-hmm. Canada. So we've never had more uh, you know, of, of, this, uh, of this sort of uh, process uh, going on in our country right now. Uh, and that's very concerning because um, it, it, it begs the question of whether or not our courts are becoming sort of uh, an extended arm of the administrative state uh-huh. or whether they're operating in the way that they're supposed to be. And that is as fair, impartial arbiters uh-huh. of, of fact and law and ultimately truth. Uh-huh. And so I think we have a serious, uh, quite some serious questions around that to answer right now in our country. I think the antidote to that uh, and sort of the silver lining on the cloud is that it, it is still 
within the province of the legislatures in our country to to take back that authority, that lawmaking authority, by by fettering the discretion of judges. And and I think, frankly, this is a necessary step. Okay, so the punchline here is that the ball then after this decision is firmly in the court of the premier and her team here in in uh, in Alberta. Uh, right. To make yes. legislation, what kind of legislation would you advise them to make? I think, first of all, I, I would recommend strongly recommend abolition of the Office of Chief Medical Officer of Health. I don't think we need it. Um, I think it's a it's a creation now that we've seen is very dangerous, uh, and it obscures it obscures and obfuscates the relationship between the public and their elected government. Uh, to 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 have sort of have this this appointed official who has enormous power, and we saw this unfold in every province and even federally with Dr. Tam, mm-hmm. where arguably these people became the most powerful people in the history of our country, and no one elected for them. In fact, I dare say most people never even heard of a chief medical mm-hmm. officer of health mm-hmm. until the pandemic. Right. So we don't need that office. I think. Secondly, I don't think that governments we've seen now what one of the things that COVID revealed is what governments will do if they have these emergency powers. Mm -hmm. They don't need them. They haven't exercised them wisely. And I think that they're dangerous to democracy. I think that they are, in a a true sense, unconstitutional. Uh, They're not provided for under constitutional law, either in terms of custom or the black letter law. And really, governments do not need emergency powers. Significant to note, you know, in Canada, we were able to to, to declare World War II in 1939 without handing emergency powers over to the prime minister and his cabinet. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, I, I think these are things that the, the, you know, the removal of emergency powers. In terms of the judiciary, um, there are changes that can be made to the rules of court, which govern the behavior of judges and lawyers, which could restrict uh, a judicial discretion, the exercise of judicial discretion. It's important to note around the around the charter. It's all judge-made law. Uh, we don't have we don't have statutory law, which which right now that which confines or constrains the enormous discretion of judges. I think that the federal government needs to make changes in terms of um, fettering the discretion of the Supreme Court in terms of deciding what cases they're going to hear, mm-hmm. uh, because it, it seems to be somewhat capricious mm-hmm. uh, in 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 terms of the cases that I mentioned. There are also changes to something called the Interpretation Act, uh, which deals with how judges are to exercise their discretion when interpreting statute. And changes could be made to the Interpretation Act in the various provinces, um, which would which would even tell judges how they are to interpret Section One of the Charter, mm-hmm. uh, how how they're to interpret uh, provincial human rights codes, and and that could change the way that that judges deal with. Uh, this this balancing of of, of public policy uh, mm-hmm. initiative versus the the sacred rights of the individual, mm-hmm. uh, which which is which is as we saw was completely out of balance, completely out of whack in the context of COVID, where even though we had arguably the most severe uh, human rights uh, violations or restrictions of individual liberties we've ever seen in this country, uh, that that didn't seem to matter a whit. Yeah, uh, it, it was only it was only you know the government's narrative, uh, which we now know was based upon a very one-sided view of, of the matter, it was not backed up by a very persuasive uh, science. 
um, that that uh, that was heard and considered carefully by courts. Courts either accepted that science out of uh, you know willy nilly, uh, or simply refused to to weigh the the, the 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 two sides of the case. And you know we we presented in our case we presented the court with thousands of pages of science, and uh, you know it just wasn't it just wasn't given serious consideration. So we're at a um, a fork in the road again, um, Leighton, so to speak, where we're, we're calling really on the premier of Alberta, uh, the caucus to really be defenders of individual rights and freedoms and to be able to walk the balance between making timely actions when it comes to uh, difficult crises, but also to safeguard individual rights and freedoms. So that kind of legislative initiative is very important. So does that mean that citizens then um, have a very important role then to speak up and call their representatives to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, if, if people can take any lesson away from COVID-19, and not only from COVID-19, but uh, some of the legislation that's coming out of this federal government in terms of censorship. For example, right now, people are talking about, you know, they can't get news about the wildfires because of Bill C-18. And it's led to the shutdown of news that was transported or transmitted to people through Facebook. Um, all of these are, are very, very important lessons. And you put your finger squarely on the problem. And I think that is the, ultimately, that's the antidote to all of this, hmm. is that I, I, I would hope and I pray that, um, that, that Canadians would now learn that we can't just blindly leave uh, the, the, the governance of our nation to elected or even non-appointed officials. We've got to get involved at the grassroots level and, and to safeguard our communities. And this means getting involved in things like library boards, um, you know, things like, um, you, know, you know, serving on your local school board, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting involved in, in local municipal elections, getting connected uh, when, when there's a provincial election, you know, getting involved in, in that process as a vote counter or as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. We've got to take back, uh, you know, governance of our communities and not expect so much from government. We mm-hmm. have too much government in this country, and we've seen the fruits of that, right? In the Bible, it says we we know something by its fruits, right? And that's what we're seeing in this country. What we've found out that during the management of COVID-19 is there's a lot of deference to quote experts, when in fact, we know now that a lot of those experts were actually not listened to in terms of uh, best practices when it comes to how it was approached, like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of this was driven by kind of a fear and a desire for political leaders to be seen as protecting the community, understandably. But we didn't really have the information that was based on facts and evidence to actually safeguard the health and well-being of Canadians. We went a very political path here, did we not? Yes. And, you know, the, the scary thing about Canada is that uh, the next time a, a public emergency happens, and in fact, we're experiencing one right now in our country with the fires, we're going to have even less information than last time. Uh, because there, there's a, there, we have much far less access to news now than we have ever mm-hmm. had during my lifetime. And, and so, you know, the, le- the degree of censorship in terms of what's available to people has never been more severe uh, and so we're, we're just seeing COVID seems to have uh, resulted in, not seems to, evidently has, 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 uh, has resulted in governments, especially the federal government, 
uh, in Canada from, from actually encroaching even more so on human rights and civil liberties than it did during COVID. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Freedom of speech and access to information are, are even more restricted now than they were during COVID. Yeah. So you're calling then, you're challenging us, uh, Leighton, that we need uh, freedom of information more than ever. So any government censorship is, is undermining the health and welfare of Canadians. You're also uh, challenging the Alberta government to enact legislation that defines the power of these officials. You're even calling for the uh, abolition of the role of the medical officer of health. And you're really asking for transparency and accountability. So to me, this is the perfect time. It's almost like an Esther moment, I think, of from the Bible, where <laughs> citizens can come forward now and let their voice be known so that the public officials have the courage that the public is behind them and is supporting them to enact this kind of leadership so that this type of pandemic never happens again, period. Mm -hmm. Oh, I quite agree. And uh, and again, this is the silver lining on the cloud. I mean, the, if you ask people and when you listen to some of the testimony from the National Citizens Inquiry, what comes through is a, is a sense of, of uh, you know, disempowerment. Uh, almost a dehumanization of the public as though we're irrelevant. Um, and, but the truth is actually something far different. What we see when we look closely at our current politicians is that with some notable exceptions, they aren't ideologues. Mm -hmm. They are people who are very interested in holding on to power. And we saw this with their intense interest, almost addiction to polling. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what I would ask the, your viewers is, well, what if we change the message that's going back to them through the polling? What if the message that they were getting uh, was very, very different? That we want freedom, we want prosperity, we want less government mm -hmm. in our lives, we want to, to be free of taxes, uh, of harsh taxes, that we want more responsible government. And the proof of this, uh, you know, is in the pudding. Uh, you know, we were locked down for almost two years. Then, of course, we had the Freedom Convoy, which is the most important public demonstration in the history of our country, certainly in this century. And that's when everything changed. Mm -hmm. That's when the polling changed, right? And so we do have that power. We've been sort of, uh, you know, Matthias Desmond has a great book called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And in that book, he talks about this process, how people become demoralized, they become hopeless, and they just feel like they have no power to make a difference. But the reality, I think, is quite different we just awaken to to the truth and that is we actually have more influence over these politicians than perhaps we ever have had before mm -hmm. in our country uh and of course when you look down south you know the the success of donald trump over the past several years i think is is proof of that there is a there is a power in populism and uh and i think we've got to take the the legislative process the democratic process back in this country uh, in order to restore our, our, you know, our cherished rights and freedoms and really our, our culture, our political culture, mm -hmm. which is, which again is one of freedom and prosperity, respect for minority rights, but not domination by oppressive minorities, which is what we're living through right now in Canada, in my respect. Yeah. Or, or oppression by unlimited government power. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So I think that's the way forward. If I want to, you know, if I'm going to encourage your viewers, that's what I would say to them, you know, there's so much you can do. Our, our friend Preston Manning has a great book called Do Something, uh, which describes 365 things you can do. One thing every day to influence your community. 
to influence the people around you. We all have influence. We don't all have the same influence that say a premier does or a chief medical officer of health, but we all have things that we can do to get involved in our communities to really make a difference. You bet. It's almost like, uh, my, you know, my friend, uh, 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 who, who looked after the, he was the main lawyer for the national citizen inquiry, Sean Buckley. You know, he, he gives a great, he gave a great speech during there about the second commandment and how, if we just all live by the second commandment, <laughs> we'd be so much less reliant on government and again? indeed less reliant on law. <laughs> and what is that second commandment again, Leighton? Well, it, it, love thy neighbor, love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, really, if you think about that, uh, you know, that what other law do we need? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, we it, could live so uh, peacefully with each other and so prosperously and so free it's, uh, if it's, we just did that. It's timeless wisdom, uh, Leighton. And when you look at the big picture, um, I can see why you are so passionate and articulate when it comes to uh, being a truth teller and uh, fighting for uh, this freedom for um, not only for us, but for future generations. And that's for the health and well-being of all Canadians. So bravo on you, uh, Jeff uh, Rath, and also, the, of course, the Justice Centre for moving this ball forward. So thank you for your leadership and your courage. And Leighton Gray, thank you for joining us. Thanks, David. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.